apostle to Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This epistle by Paul to Timothy is going to require a little bit of introduction. Paul writes the letter to Timothy, who happened to be in a place called Ephesus. That's going to be a place that's going to be familiar to some of you. It's an ancient city that was in the ancient world of Asia. It was a beautiful resort town. As a matter of fact, when Antony and Cleopatra ran away and they went on their honeymoon, they picked Ephesus as, as, as the spot that they wanted to go. Many conservative Bible scholars place the writing of this little epistle about 64 AD. Scholars suggest that Paul may have written this from either Rome or Macedonia or Philippi. Warren Wearsby believes that he might have written it from Colossae in the Lycus Valley, that little area that we spoke about the last time we were together and we, we, we were teaching through the book of Philemon and I, we talked about the runaway slave and that Philemon was from that particular area. And so some people suggest that Paul was able to make his way back to that place and visit Philemon. Whether he wrote it from Rome or Macedonia or Philippi, it would appear that it was prior to his final imprisonment in Rome. Paul's purpose in writing the letter was to provide encouragement and guidance to Timothy, who was a young leader. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to promote godliness, to embrace sound doctrine, to confront a growing group of false leaders who had made their way into the Ephesian fellowship. In the book of Acts, when Paul leaves that particular place, he prophesies that people will come in and they will divide and disrupt the church in Ephesus. And he was right. We know that Paul hoped to visit Timothy in Ephesus from chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If you just turn the page real quick, it says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know that you ought to, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. What's in, and, and then again, in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Till I come... Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Paul will mention the word doctrine and sound doctrine many, many times. We know that Paul hoped to visit, but we, we don't know that he ever actually did make it. Some of the key phrases in the letter are not ashamed, suffer hardship. Endure, the word, charge, diligence. 
The phrase charge is interesting because it translates the word commandment that's also used in verse 3 when he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That word charge or commandment is actually a military term. And it's going to be used again in chapter in chapter 1, verse 5, and then again in verse 18, in chapter 4, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 13, and then again in verse 17. And like I said, it's a military word, which means to evaluate or pass down the line. And so the Lord Jesus entrusts Paul with the gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so this book becomes a, a, a picture, if you will, of Paul entrusting to Timothy those things that he wants entrusted to others. And so, again... The sacred charge included guarding the gospel as you would a treasure. Again, we, we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. But Timothy must not keep this sacred gospel to himself. He has to impart it to faithful people who would, will entrust it to others. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul will use again other military phrases like occasion. When he uses the term occasion... That word in its context in the Greek language in the first century meant the place or the base of operation or a base camp that you would establish in order to go where you need to go. People who climb mountains will establish a base camp from which to begin their journey in whatever trajectory they're about to make. So the theme of the book is summarized in chapter 3 verse 15 which I've already read to you. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. This book is a book about how we are to conduct ourselves among the congregation, in the church. We might think of this as a, as a sort of how-to book. Not just simply for the young pastor who has the oversight of church, but also for church members. This is a book that basically is asking and answering the question, how am I supposed to act in church? How am I supposed to conduct myself? What am I supposed to do? Paul writes, remarkably, that the church... The local church is the pillar and ground. When you see the word ground, it means foundation. It's the pillar and ground of truth. But you need to understand something. The truth has fallen out of favor in the contemporary culture. In the hierarchy of places to go and things to do, the church is often not second or third or fifth or even tenth on the list of things to do. People will find a lot of other things to do rather than go to church. 
People neglect community, which is, which is interesting to me, and disregard authority and abuse privileges. But Paul is going to remind the believers of not just the opportunity that we have with one another, but what's supposed to take place when we're with one another. And so Paul will cover issues like false teachers and false doctrine. Like I said, he's going to emphasize sound doctrine in verse 3 through 11. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And then again in chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. This is remarkable in and of itself for those people who think that teaching doesn't matter or right belief doesn't matter. But right behavior is impossible unless you have right belief. Paul will address the issue of public worship in chapter 2. Since the church is a place that's supposed to promote worship, and then the necessity and the centrality of prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he is going to address this issue. Paul will also address the conduct of women. Evidently, at this time and under those circumstances, there were a group of feminists, if you will, who were disrupting the service. And so Paul is going to have to address this issue. In both of these issues, Paul's goal isn't just to expose what is wrong and, and promote what is good. Part of his goal is to promote the reality of unity. And sometimes we forget that. Paul wants the church to be unified in the, uh, in the subject of grace, in the subject of mercy, in the subject of peace, in your relationship with one another. Paul is also aware of the damage that's done by division. So Paul is again going to remind us of the sincere devotion to the Lord trumps tradition or social interactions. Paul's other concerns include church leadership in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. What it means to be a caring church in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Again in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul is going to address the issue of personal discipline in both Timothy's life and in the life of the leaders in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Again in chapter 5, verse 21. Again in chapter 6, verse 6. So you can imagine this six-chapter little epistle is jam-packed with a lot of information. In brief, the letter is written to encourage Timothy in his God-given ministry to warn false about false teaching and doctrinal error and then to teach about the qualifications of leaders, officials, deacons, people who are in the congregation working with one another. And so, again, it's about what we need to know and how we need to behave in church. So let's, again, look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. In our culture and society, when you get a letter, you might go to the mailbox or if you have a mailbox or whatever, you open the letter and sometimes you'll sneak to the end to say, 
hey, who wrote this letter? Well, usually our letters have a return address, so you have some idea of where it came from and, and who wrote it. And of course, with the contemporary culture of email, you have a receiver and a sender, so there's not a whole lot left to the imagination. But in the ancient world, this is how they wrote letters. This is how all correspondence went. You identified yourself at the beginning of the letter, and that's exactly what Paul does. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it begins with the minister's call and credentials. He says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the term apostle, of course, means the one who is sent or the one who is sent forth. So the apostle is the one who, in part, represents the sender. We might think of it. In this case, that Paul is sent by God and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should briefly note that the one sent doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to the sender. So when Paul actually identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's also claiming that he is not his own, that he doesn't belong to himself, but he belongs to the person who sent him. Again, in that culture and society, when you're commissioned by a sender, you possess the authority and the power of the person who is sent. In this context, an apostle means a person who's not only sent by God and who's sent by Jesus, but has the power and the authority to exercise the reason for being sent. Again, in our culture and society, if you're an ambassador to a particular nation, if this country, if the United States of America sends you to Jordan or Korea or Central or South America and empowers you to negotiate on the part of our country trade deals or whatever, you're entrusted with a certain measure of power. All of that is implied in the ancient world of a person who claims apostolic authority. And, and you need to note this, particularly if this is the only study you hear and you don't come back. He's an apostle by the command of God. The word command is an interesting Greek word. For, the, for those of you who are specialists, you, the word itself is epitagen. The word means that person who is under orders. And so when he says, by the commandment of God, Paul is making the claim that he is under orders by God and Jesus to communicate what is being communicated. Now that might sound a little brusque, but what it means is also that he's been placed in a position of obligation. You see, in the military, a superior may say to a subordinate soldier, you have your orders. Now, when a general or a colonel or a captain says to a soldier, soldier, you have your orders, what's the implication? You have a responsibility to fulfill the order. And that's exactly what Paul is saying about himself. The word command carries it with it the idea of obligation, even compulsion, even force. 
even necessity. And so when he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, it should provoke you. You should ask the text a question. What is Paul claiming? He's a minister. In what sense? Why is Paul a minister? Because he's been sent by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul say what Timothy already knows? You may not know it at this point, but Paul and Timothy have a very deep and long relationship. And so you might be asking the question, why does Paul even bring this up? Obviously, Timothy knows he's an apostle. He knows his story. He knows his testimony. So why bring up all of this information? And I'm going to suggest to you that the stress on his apostolic authority is meant in part not simply to remind Timothy or provide Timothy with the permission and obligation to embrace what he's saying, but to share the instructions with the whole congregation of believers. In other words, Paul isn't simply writing to Timothy. He's writing to everyone in the congregation. He's writing to everyone in Ephesus. I'm going to suggest to you he's writing to everyone in the province. I'm going to suggest to you that he's writing to every Christian. And I'm also going to suggest to you that he's writing to every Christian in every age. That what he has to say is important to you and to me. Critics might argue, especially hostile critics, well, what gives Paul the right to make blanket statements about the role of leaders and the role of women? You don't know how many times people have said to me when we finally get to Ephesians chapter 5 and actually chapter 4 and 5, people will say, well, you know, Paul says this about women, but, you know, this is Paul's opinion. Now, again, in verses 1 and 2, are you left with the impression that what Paul is about to communicate with Timothy is his opinion? No, that's actually the point. Well, what gives him the right? But let's just for purposes of discussion concede the question as a fair question. Paul's answer is that he's sent by God with the commandment of God and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul calls God our Savior and then he calls Jesus our hope. Clearly, the word Savior is a title of God. It was also a title that Roman emperors would write on their coinage. It's the Greek word soter. It can mean deliverer. It can mean liberator, depending on the context. But here, I think that Paul means that God is the source of salvation. Salvation is impossible apart from God. So what is he talking about when he's talking about salvation? I think that what he's talking about is salvation from sin. He's talking about salvation from the consequences of sin and from the wrath of God. So 
Here's what he's saying. Jesus tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That God is our savior and the reason why he's determined to be our savior is because he loves us. Not that he hates us. He loves us. God's determined to be our savior because he cares about us. If God didn't love us, then we wouldn't be saved. And so for the person who says, how do I know that God loves me? You know the answer. If God didn't love you, you wouldn't have a savior. And the very fact that you do have a savior provides the most compelling reason to believe that he does love you. But also there's another reason why I think God bears the title. Savior. It's because we need a savior. Human beings need to be rescued, don't they? People who are living in darkness, absent light, people who are living detached from God, distant from God, they need a Savior. And the Bible teaches that we've all sinned, that we've rebelled against God. The Bible teaches that we've been sentenced to death and that we're subject to God's punishment and to God's judgment. But then God sends Jesus into the world to be our hope. Hence, the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. It makes perfect sense. Paul is driven by God to represent Jesus in this broken world of sin and the people who have been sentenced to death. Paul must preach the glorious message of salvation and hope. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Paul is driven to help people who are hurt, who are broken, who are empty, desperate, and in need of hope. Mary, when she learns that she's going to carry the Messiah, says in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. Later, Paul writes, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who who wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That's what he will say in chapter 2, verses 3 through 36. And so the minister's credential has to include a calling by God and then a message that God is the source of salvation and that Jesus is the instrument of hope. And so if anyone claims to be a minister, if anyone claims to represent God, if anyone claims that they have a message from God, but it isn't a message that includes the reality that God is Savior and that Jesus is hope, then they have every reason to not trust them. So what is it exactly that human beings hope for? It's okay for you to ask yourself that question right at this very moment. What am I hoping for? Well, I'm hoping that the presidential race doesn't boil down to Trump and Clinton. Sorry. Prepare to be disappointed. Someone asked me, if you have to choose between Clinton and 
Trump, who do you choose? I said, that's like asking me to choose between being shot and poisoned. Can't I have another choice? We have hope. We might hope that our kids grow up to be normal. We might hope to be financially secure. We might hope for recognition or security. We might hope for victory over trials. Some of us may go so far as to hope that maybe our sin can be forgiven or that we can be delivered from death or the possibility of knowing and loving and having a right relationship with God. There's all kinds of different things that people hope for. And what of the person who hopes for eternal life? What of the person who hopes? I want to draw something to your attention. The very fact that a person hopes for something becomes an indication and a realization of something that they don't possess. What, do you, what is it that you hope for? Peace? What is it that you hope for? Assurance. What is it that you hope for? The Bible says that Jesus is our hope. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. In the early church, Jesus had many titles. He's called everything from advocate to counselor, mighty God. But here's one of those blessed titles our hope. William Barclay writes, quote, Ignatius of Antioch, when he was on his way to execution in Rome, writes to the church in Ephesus, quote, be of good cheer in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, our common hope. Polycarp writes, quote, let us therefore persevere in our hope and the earnest, that means down payment, of our righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. Paul will write that the Holy Spirit is our down payment. This particular um, person, Polycarp, writes that Jesus is the down payment. That it's sort of the earnest or, or I guess the word that we would use in our culture and our society is if you go to look for a property and they ask you to make a deposit on that property, it's because they're, you're serious about obtaining the property. And so God gives you everything that God gives you because he's, he's, he's earnest. He's going to make good on his promises. And so we go to the disciples' privilege in verse 2. Look what it says. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul writes to Timothy, but he clearly intends his letter to be read by all of the believers. Again, he doesn't simply appoint or anoint Timothy to be the bishop or the overseer or the pastor over the church at Ephesus. But I'm going to suggest something else to you. Timothy, a true son in the faith, isn't simply the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He isn't just simply in charge of a congregation. I'm going to suggest to you that he is Paul's representative in the region. 
How do we know that? Because in this letter, Paul instructs Timothy on the order of public worship, on the appointment of church officials, that's bishops and deacons, on the disciplines of public or corporate worship and prayer. He's going to instruct him on the role and relationship of leaders and also of the role and relationship of women in ministry, bishops, deacons. He's also going to instruct him on confronting apostasy He's also going to instruct him on the behavior that is expected. And Paul's going to remind Timothy about how to maintain good relations with local congregations and then give instructions about the pastor and the congregations, the church, the the place of widows, the relationship between slaves and masters. It's going to include all of those things. I didn't go into depth on the identity of Paul because I assumed that most of you know who Paul is and maybe I assumed wrong. But for those of you who are unaware of who he is, obviously he is the guy who is Saul, the persecutor of the church, who becomes Paul. He has a glorious transformation that takes place on the road to Damascus where he has a vision of Jesus and he gets incredibly saved. He gets saved and he begins a personal journey. He winds up in a place called Antioch where he along with Barnabas are sent on a missionary journey. It's on that missionary journey that he meets Timothy. And what do we know about Timothy? Well, he was born in Lystra. And it's too bad we don't have a a, a little slide for you, but if you have a Bible and you have maps in the back of your Bible, if you look at what's modern Turkey in the, in the, in the province that was known as Asia and Galatia or Galatia, where we get the book of Galatians, Paul, Timothy is born in Lystra. And you may not know about all of this stuff, but Lystra was a Roman colony. Lystra was a place where Latin people, Roman people, and Greek people congregated. The Romans built a road from Lystra to Colossae and Hierapolis. So again, it's an ancient Turkey. This particular colony was later incorporated into the Roman province known as Galatia. So Paul visits this place in 48 AD, and then he visits it again in 51 AD. Timothy's mother is a lady named Eunice. His grandmother is a lady named Lois. They were devout Jews who came to faith in the Lord Jesus, that according to Acts chapter 16, verse 1, and again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It would appear that Timothy's father was Greek. And we have no evidence that he was a proselyte to Judaism or a convert to Christianity. We have no evidence that he had any religious leanings. He may have been who knows what. But the biggest evidence in my mind that he is a pagan is because Timothy isn't circumcised. He has a a Jewish mom and he has a Jewish grandmother. And if he has a Greek father and the mom and the grandmother are begging, begging her husband 
for Timothy to be raised in the Jewish faith. He's not apparently raised in the Jewish faith because he is not circumcised. He remains uncircumcised. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, we discover that Paul circumcises Timothy in order to avoid leadership problems in that particular area, which leads me to believe that he's probably not raised as a Jew. But he's going to circumcise Timothy in order to avoid problems. So what else might we think about? What was Timothy's relationship like with his biological father? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We have every reason to believe that with his grandmother and with his mother, they teach him the scriptures from an early age. So was his father a pagan? We don't know. Was he abusive? We don't know. But I'm going to suggest to you that whatever is true, Paul takes on the role of a father to Timothy. He becomes like a surrogate dad to him. He loves him and cares for him. In Acts 16.3, it says, Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him. And circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Think for a moment. Before Timothy begins his travels with Paul, he submits to the painful act of circumcision. In other words, Paul is saying, I want to take you with me. I want to take you with me in ministry. But in order for you to be an effective minister... We have to create an atmosphere where you can minister to both Jew and Greek with the least amount of problems. Like I said, Timothy's mom and grandma carefully teach him the Jewish scriptures. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He's apparently open to the gospel. And apparently when Paul shows up at Lystra, he preaches in Acts chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. And in that campaign at Lystra, this young man, Timothy, hears the gospel and gets saved. And he must have displayed exceptional faith and growth because Paul chooses him to be his partner in the work of the ministry. You know, for those of you who are involved in ministry or you do any kind of ministry at all, it's fairly important that that the people you work with share your views, embrace your views. The Bible says, how can the two walk unless the two are agreed? And so Paul takes him on the second missionary journey. And since Paul's, since Timothy's father is Greek and his mother's Jewish, I'm going to suggest something else. In that culture and society, that's sort of an equivalent to a biracial marriage. You see, if your father's Greek and your mother's Jewish, you're torn between the pagan customs of the Jewish people, excuse me, of the Greek people, and then the religious observances of a Jewish mother. Some of you may have grown up in a household like that where, you, where your mom or your dad, you had some religion or no religion or you had a mother who was a Catholic and a father who was a Protestant or vice versa 
with some religion or no religion, each and every one of us find ourselves in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. But if you can imagine two different people with such a profoundly different outlook on the world, you're going to be subject to all kinds of prejudice and all kinds of problems growing up in a divided household. But I'm going to suggest to you that it makes Timothy uniquely qualified to both love and care for both Greeks and Jews. You know, we live in a culture and a society now where there's a growing population of biracial children. Whether one parent is black and another parent is white or Native American or, or Filipino or Asian or whatever that is, America becomes a place of a kind of a melting pot where cultures sort of converge. But Paul calls Timothy, look what he says, a true son in the faith. And by the way, that word son is very, very tender. It's a word in the Greek language that you would normally use to describe your own flesh and blood. You know, some of you have relationships with people who may not be flesh and blood to you, but they're like flesh and blood. You, that you love them like a mother or a brother or a father. And so Paul is using that word that's usually reserved for flesh and blood. Timothy shares Paul's views. Now again, put it in perspective. Timothy leaves Lystra. He travels with Paul. And those of you who are unfamiliar with the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, you find that it is Timothy who accompanies Paul to establish the church in Philippi, establish the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea, Acts 16, verse 1, through chapter 17, verse 14. You can read it for yourself. Then Paul leaves Berea early to go to Athens. He leaves Timothy and Silas behind. Paul sends word for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible in Acts chapter 17. Timothy joins Paul in Athens and then is sent to Thessalonica to encourage the believers. And then Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, he joins Paul in Athens. Later, Timothy rejoins Paul in Corinth and then he helps him establish the church in Corinth. Now you're starting to understand. Oh, you mean Timothy was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens. And when you hang out with a person like that, do you think you get kind of close? There's a bond. There's a relationship that forms. We're also told that Timothy worked with Paul at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 verse 22. Then Paul sends Timothy along with Erastus to Greece to minister to the churches and prepare for a possible visit by Paul. Again, the book of Acts makes no mention of Paul excuse me, makes no mention of Timothy during Paul's trip to Jerusalem. The Bible is silent. Was Timothy with Paul when he goes to Jerusalem? When there's a riot that breaks out, where he is arrested and taken to Caesarea, and then from Caesarea he stays there for two years, and then he embarks on a ship with Roman soldiers to Rome to stand trial before Nero. We're not told. The Bible is silent on that issue. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 19, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, and Philemon, that during the imprisonment that Paul planned to send Timothy 
But whether or not he was going to send Timothy to Philippi, but whether or not he ever made it, we don't know. But after his release from prison, Timothy travels with Paul to Ephesus. And so Paul goes back to Ephesus and then leaves Timothy in charge of the congregation in order to do the work of the ministry. And so you can imagine that when Timothy gets this letter from a person who he has spent so much time with as he's dealing with the hardships and difficulties of ministry, that this letter is like water in the desert. Have you ever actually loved someone and cared about them and you didn't hear from them for a while? And then all of a sudden they come back into your life and you're so glad to hear from them. You're so glad that they can be a part of your life again. And so this letter is like that. Paul's execution in about AD 67 will later, Paul will ask Timothy to visit him in prison during his second imprisonment. But again, we have no, no clue whether or not he ever made it back. And we know that Paul was executed sometime um, before Nero committed suicide in June of 68 AD. And so there's some mysteries still left. By the way, the writer of Hebrews mentions Timothy at the end of his letter. At the end of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 23, it says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from prison. Actually, the text says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. The implication is Paul winds up in jail. Apparently, Timothy winds up in jail. The writer of Hebrews says, if he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. But you can imagine, with that kind of background and those kinds of adventures, that Paul and Timothy share a very special relationship. And so then Paul reminds Timothy of the grace, mercy, and peace provided by our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. I could actually stop here and say a whole lot more, but let's just quickly think about this for just a moment. What does Paul mean by grace and mercy and peace? Whatever else it means, I'm going to suggest to you, when he says both the Father and the Son, it says Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It would appear that both the Father and the Son are the sources, that they are co-equal in providing the resources of grace and mercy and peace. Where does grace and mercy and peace come from? It comes from the Father. Where else? It comes from the Son. Where else? Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament knows that it also comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul would be the very first person to admit that Jesus is God. That he's not a lesser being. And so the disciples' provision, it begins with grace. It's Paul's standard 
greeting in every letter almost he says grace and peace grace always comes before peace because grace makes peace possible and for those of you again who may even be unfamiliar with that word grace has been called God's unmerited favor some people will use that acronym G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense we're transferred from death to life by grace, according to John 5, 24. The gospel itself is called the gospel of grace in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, because it proclaims God's favor on the undeserving. And so that's what grace is. Grace is God's favor on the undeserving. And the Bible teaches that, that this grace is in Jesus and that it is saving grace in Ephesians 2, 5. Sufficient grace. Remember, Paul will say, my grace is sufficient for you in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It's saving grace and sufficient grace and serving grace. Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 28 will say, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. And so the grace that's in Christ Jesus is also a supplying grace of his fullness we've all received. Grace for grace, it says in John 1.16. We can't exhaust grace. We're saved by grace, Ephesians 2.5. Justified by grace, Romans 3.24. Elected by grace, Romans 11.5. We labor in grace, 1 Corinthians 15.10. We grow in grace, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. How can you exaggerate grace? And then mercy. By the way, the word mercy, Elias, was used in the ancient world to describe the feeling of pity and compassion, affection and kindness. Mercy was a word that was used to describe the emotion that when you saw someone in need and you said to yourself, God, I want to help them. Has that ever happened to you? You see someone in pain, you see someone hurt, you see someone in some sort of profound difficulty, and you go, Lord, Lord, I wish I could help them. This word, when it's used to describe God, well, let me back up for just a second. There are two essential elements to mercy. The ability to see the need and then the ability to meet the need. Think about that for just a moment. The two elements of mercy is I see your need. The second element of mercy is I have the ability to meet your need. Again, when the word is used to describe God and the Lord Jesus Christ, does God know every need? Yeah. Does God have the ability to meet every need? The answer is yes. Does Jesus see every need? Yes. Does he have the ability to meet every need? Yes. Do we see every need? No. Do we see some need? Yes. And the one that we see, are we always able to help? Not always. So God sees our need. And feels for us. And this is what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Where, and this is why he's called the God of mercy. He sees you. He sees you in your need. And he wants to meet that need. And, and so now think about this. In what sense? What does he see? What does God see when he sees you in your need? 
He sees your heart and he sees your circumstance. He sees your life. He sees your relationships. He sees everything about everything. But the most important thing that he sees is your spiritual condition and the inevitable judgment that awaits you when you reject Christ. And so in mercy, in mercy, in mercy, he sends Jesus and he withholds judgment. I want you to think about it for just a moment. In mercy, God provides a way for us to to be saved. Mercy dwells in the heart of love and then is made manifest in the Lord Jesus. Jesus dies for our sins. He takes his sin upon himself. He takes our judgment upon himself. He not only takes his sin on our sin on himself, but then he imparts his righteousness to us. In mercy, God makes the unacceptable acceptable in Christ. And the object of wrath then becomes the object of mercy. By the way, mercy is both an Old Testament concept and a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament word and a New Testament word. In the Old Testament word, it translates the word chesed. And that word speaks of mercy, but it also speaks of loving kindness. It speaks of protection and guidance. And so in the Old Testament, when you spoke of the mercy of God, you spoke of his loving kindness towards you, his protection of you, and his guidance for you. In the New Testament, we might think of this as God acting out. Have you ever heard someone use that expression? I think he or she is acting out. Usually when we use it, we think of it in a negative term. If a person's been bullied or shamed or has some sort of broken thing in their life, some addiction or some problem, we speak of them acting out. But God acts out of grace and mercy. He acts out to set us free. Mercy is compassion and action. The church father Augustine wrote, two works of mercy set a man free. Forgive and you will be forgiven and give and you will receive. You see the truth? When you receive forgiveness, you're receiving mercy. When you extend forgiveness, it's because you yourself have been the recipient of mercy. So grace Mercy and peace are the tools that Timothy will need to carry out the tasks that are going to be assigned to him. And grace and mercy and peace are going to be the spiritual resources that you need, not simply for yourself, but in order to do what God is calling you to do. So the minister of God and the child of God have experienced the mercy of God. A person who's never experienced the mercy of God can't know God. And the person who's never experienced the mercy of God certainly can't extend it to others. And so finally, peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. They're the trio of God's blessings. Grace is love planning to bless. Mercy is love active in blessing. Peace 
is love and joy. In the Bible, we have peace with God and we have the peace of God. It's a purchased peace. We can't earn it. We can't obtain it. The word peace means to lay down your arms. It means to surrender. It means that which is broken has now been reconciled. It's something that you can't earn. You can't trade. You can't demand it. Because the purchase price of peace is always blood. The blood of Jesus shed for us. It embodies peace. The Bible says he is our peace who's broken down every wall. It's not something that simply comes from Christ. Peace doesn't just simply come come from Jesus according to the New Testament. It is Jesus. He is your peace. It's abiding peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you in John 14, 27. Not as the world gives. It's not temporary or arbitrary. It's complete peace. Perfect. It's a keeping peace. Isaiah 26, 3. You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. It's a peace that encourages and nobles. Jesus says, peace to the woman who anoints Jesus with a flask of fragrant oil, who's a sinner. For those of you who are unfamiliar, in Luke chapter 7, you'll remember the story. A lady comes to Jesus and she's weeping and crying and she breaks an alabaster um, container on Jesus. And the Pharisee says to himself, this guy's no prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman this is. That she's a sinner. And it's interesting. Jesus says in Luke 7.50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's interesting to me. Does the peace of God rule in your heart? In your heart, is there the settled assurance that you're right with God? That you're right with Jesus. Peace has its origin in heaven. Because the Bible says God is not the author of confusion but of peace. Peace is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It's the product of the cross. So he made peace the Bible says. Through the cross of Jesus. And so. We're going to begin our study. In 1 Timothy. But as you do, there's going to be things that you're going to be asked to do. And it's going to require grace. It's going to require mercy. It's going to require peace. Paul's going to call Timothy to preach sound doctrine. To preach the glorious gospel. To defend the faith. Later in the epistle, Paul is going to give instructions about prayer, about modesty, about leaders, what it means to be a good minister, what it means to be a godly minister, what it means to be a growing minister. And he's going to lay out instructions for the older saints, for the widows, for the leaders, for the servants, for the slaves. For the peacemakers and for the troublemakers. There's going to be something for everyone. (laughs) 
So what do you think? Does it sound interesting? Worth studying? I want to encourage you. This little epistle, it's only six chapters. This week, make it a point to read it. Read it over again. Try and read it every week that we study it. And soon, it's going to be a part of your life. But having said that, we're going to have communion. And so, again, I'm going to encourage you to just hold on to the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it makes perfect sense that as Paul is giving these instructions to someone that he loves and that he cares about, that, Lord, it's clear that you love us and that you care about us. Lord, you don't want to leave us in the dark. You want us to help us think through the things that are difficult to understand. You want to help us, Lord, and give us the resources that we need. And Lord, it's wonderful that what we need most, that you have an awesome, inexhaustible supply of grace, mercy, peace, a full and abundant provision has been made for us in the person of Jesus. So Lord, we pray again, even as we prepare our hearts right now to have communion, the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the provision of Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed, that you would give us everything, everything, everything that we need in order to be men and women who love you and love each other and who can serve you and then serve one another. And so even now, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.